Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I am an associate professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law in Lexington, Virginia, where I teach all things business. Today, I am very excited to have uh, two of my dear friends on the show. And the topic of today's episode is meme stocks and the rise of retail investors. My guests have authored several pieces that profile retail investors. And it just so happens that yesterday we literally had GameStop and AMC's stocks be stopped in trading. Um, so this is super timely, and we're going to kind of unpack all of the things that have been happening with retail investors and the so-called meme stocks. So I will start by having them introduce themselves. First, Christina. Hi, I'm Christina Sauter. I am the Cynthia Felder Fayard uh, Professor of Law, the Byron R. Cantro Professor of Law, and the Vincent Elkins Professor of Law at Louisiana State University Palm Bear Law Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I also teach all things business and, and research and all things business, particularly obsessed with retail investors. Um, I teach mergers and acquisitions, securities regulations, business associations one, which is our basic business entities course as well as Business Associations 2, which is an advanced uh, course in, um, in uh, corporate law. And tomorrow in class, we're going to be actually speaking about GameStop and retail investors. So this is also very timely. All right. And I love that you properly pronounced A-Bear as a Texan, <laughs> right? Because uh, most people don't know how to say that right. All right, Sergio. Hi, I'm Sergio Alberto Gramito Ricci. I'm the Jacobson Fellow at NYU School of Law. Um, before joining NYU, I taught corporate law at Monash University in Australia and at Cornell Law School. Um, I love to study how corporations interact with society. I co-authored a book uh, titled Citizen Capitalism, How a Universal Fund Can Provide Influence and Income to All. And now I'm focusing on shareholders. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So I'm glad I've had this awesome group of corporate experts with Sergio lending us the international perspective, um, in case you can't tell by his accent. Um, and we are going to talk today about retail investors. And I would love for Christina to help us set the stage. Explain to us how you and Sergio have defined retail investors. And then, you know, let's explain for everyone the term that you coined in your scholarship, wireless investors. All right. So without getting really, really too technical here, retail investors are non-professional investors um, who are human beings um, like you and I. Uh, they're people who are investing themselves. And we refer to retail investors in our work really specifically to mean individuals, um, non-professional investors who are buying and selling shares directly of corporations in the stock market. And as you said, we coined the term wireless investors um, in our work. Um, wireless investors are retail investors who are using Robinhood and other you know, trading apps like Robinhood, those non-commissioned, um, commission-free trading apps. And they're also sourcing information online, um, including especially on social media. 
And they're typically uh, coming from the millennial and, and Generation Z generations. Right. And then so, you know, you mentioned wireless is specifically folks who are using, you know, uh, Robinhood and, and all those other apps. Um, you know, what has happened with these folks who are using these apps over the last years that, that makes your paper so relevant and this topic so relevant? Okay. Uh, well, a lot has happened. So um, really significant events have occurred um, since 2020, um, really since lockdown, um, since the pandemic lockdowns were occurring. Um, so first off, we saw a significant increase in, in the number of brokerage accounts being opened by retail investors. Um, and they're largely being opened by millennials and Gen Z investors. So, for example, in 2020, estimates were that there is an, about 10 to 17 million new individually owned brokerage accounts. Um, and these are largely on, on Robinhood and other trading platforms like Robinhood. And I, I see your eyes getting really wide, Carlos. Um, and it's even bigger in 2021. So in the first eight months of 2021, so January to August of 2021, there was approximately 20 million um, wow. new uh, individually owned brokerage accounts being open. So among that, among other things, made many people uh, coin 2021 as the year of the retail investor. We also, as I've already alluded to, we saw millennials and Gen Z gathering online in places like Reddit, uh, particularly the Wall Street Bet subreddit, uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Discord, on all different types of uh, social media sites. They are sharing information. They are coordinating their actions. Um, we saw them come together in, in early 2021 and invest in GameStop and, and force a short squeeze in GameStop. Um, we saw them investing in AMC Entertainment. We saw them investing in other kind of so-called meme stocks. Um, they ended up with really significant holdings in, in these uh, companies and in, in AMC and in GameStop. For example, um, just very recently, the CEO of AMC, Adam Aaron, announced that retail investors own over 90% of the outstanding shares of, of AMC now. So wow. this is obviously huge. Uh, in fact, retail investors, uh, as you know, I think saved um, AMC from bankruptcy um, due to the fact that they were in late 2020 and in 2021 buying um, share offerings that AMC made. Um, so we just, in the last couple of weeks, saw AMC uh, do a very interesting diversification move. It purchased a stake in a mining company, of all things, Highcroft Mining, um, which is obviously completely different from movie theaters. Um, I think at first there were some mixed reactions to that, kind of a little bit confusion. Um, but investors really seem to have embraced that. Um, they're very, they seem to be, at least from social media, uh, very confident in, in Adam Aaron um, and, and very confident in the you know, decisions that he's making. Um, we're seeing AMC stock going up, um, also Highcroft mining stock going up. And Highcroft, by the way, wasn't performing very well uh, when they made that move or that purchase. Um, last week, uh, Ryan Cohen, the chair of, of GameStop, purchased an additional 100,000 or so shares of GameStop, which is obviously a, a big purchase and a vote of confidence in GameStop stock. Um, and so we saw a huge amount of, of, of trading in AMC and in GameStop yesterday. Um, and as you also said, 
um, due to the significant amount of volatility, uh, trading was halted in, in both in both companies. So there's been a lot going on. We might want to break it down a little bit further as we as we go on. You know, now Sergio, why are these investors significant? You know, I think when when the meme stops stocks first started, and when like Dogecoin and all the stuff on social media was being posted, you know, I think a lot of folks didn't take them seriously, right? A lot of folks were like oh, these are just kids playing around with, you know, a few hundred dollars or their stimulus money. Like this isn't going to be a trend. So I'd love for you to like kind of more elaborate. Who are these people? You know, is it significant? Is this just a trend? I think it's super significant. Um, If we look at each of these investors, you know, taken individually, these investors have very small amount of shares. So their power is not particularly relevant. But taken together, and what is really important here is the collective dimension of this phenomenon. Taken together, these investors pack an enormous power, both on financial markets, but it can also bring this power to corporate governance. So some important you know, uh, facts to keep in mind are that uh, um, millennials and Gen Z generations make up for more than half the population of the planet. So we are talking about very um, large amount of people, right? First of all. Second of all, they have, collectively speaking, they have and soon will have an important fiscal power. Um, by According to um, a 2019 Coldwell Banker report, um, millennial wealth will increase five times by 2030 um, as they will inherit about um, $68 trillion, right? So Im- let's imagine the, the relevance that this wealth can have if these, imbe- if these generations bring that money um, to the markets. Um, Gen Z are also increasing their their fiscal power enormously with with an income that is, um, uh, that will will make up for probably about 70 trillion by uh, 2040. Wow. Okay. So when we think about a fiscal power that these people have, that this generation have, it is clear to us that if they act collectively towards predetermined goals, they can really make a difference. Um, what is also very important is, is that um, Gen Z and millennials are respectively the most diverse generation and the second most diverse generation. This means that as they bring their power to the markets, as they bring their powers to corporate governance, they bring all the values, principles, experiences that, they, that their diversity uh, provide them, right? So when we look at what's happening, uh, we have to keep in mind um, the collective dimension of the phenomenon. But this phenomenon has two layers. One layer is the collective dimension, as I, meant, as I said. The other one is the characteristics of each individuals and the ability of each individual to bring their own characteristics to the table 
and to make them count both on financial markets and in corporate governance. You know, now what's, what was interesting about the GameStop and the AMC trend, um, you know, Christina mentioned the short squeeze that they caused last year. Um, they deliberately invested in companies that were failing. Um, they don't seem to care about shareholder wealth maximization, as, as we say, you know, in the corporate world. Um, they aren't reading analyst reports and, and the things that, that we, are, we are told we should care about. Um, when we invest in the market. So like, wh- what are their goals and like, where are they finding their strategy? And either of you can answer. Yeah, uh, well, there is an important, uh, some uh, criticism have, has come from, you know, lack of fact checking. When, when you gather your information online, on social media, and, you know, just through conversation with your, with your peers, uh, risk of uh, fact checking is very relevant. So Christine and I are now uh, working on, on a paper that suggests some solutions to, uh, to counter that, that, you know, the risk related to, to, to lack of fact-checking. Um, one idea we want to develop is to have corporations harness the power of wireless investors by hosting on the corporate website a forum that is mediated by um, investor relation people and, and you know participated even by, by corporate leaders. So every time there is some information that appears inaccurate, the corporation can address it. Uh, we think that that's very important as the wireless investing phenomenon grows. Um, that also will allow wireless investors in general retail investors to have uh, more access to fundamentals because those are places where fundamentals can be discussed, uh, questions can be asked. So that is also a great opportunity both to provide the market with, uh, with uh, intelligible information and to um, enhance uh, finance and, and corporate governance literacy. So um, we see this as a real opportunity it depends on whether corporations want to, uh, let's say, uh, make the most out of this opportunity uh, instead of like considering this a risk. Um, but um, the online investing phenomenon is probably there to stay, and so it's probably it, it's it's wise to uh, to accept this as as a real opportunity rather than trying to fight fight it off. Um, so. We think that this, like, really, what's happening in the in the wireless, in the you know, online investing scenario, and this is also very much related to corporate governance. I think we also need to talk about about the goals that Carlos uh, asked about as well. Um, and I think that it, it, is, it isn't like a one size fits all answer here. I think that we have varying goals. Uh, among these investors, I think some are obviously driven by the desire to make money. I mean, who doesn't want to make money? Um, but in addition to that, they are driven by the desire to save money. Um, there are research studies out there. Uh, I just was reading one yesterday that Generation Z is very concerned with saving money um, and, and planning for retirement, even though they are still relatively young. Um, some are driven by the desire to take on Wall Street. Um, we see both millennials and Gen Z 
um, having been impacted negatively by the financial crisis and the Great Recession in 2008. Um, we see them also uh, kind of taking the, the greatest hit really from the pandemic and the recession from the pandemic. Um, so they have a lot of distrust of, of Wall Street, of big financial institutions. And I think that there's a lot of resentment um, among millennials and Gen Z um, of Wall Street and financial institutions. And so I think that we are seeing that also play out in some of the trading um, and some of their goals with, with trading and investing as well. Christina, can you explain what it means when you say they forced the short squeeze? Because, um, you know, we all know what it means and use the lingo, but, you know, just kind of ex- just quickly define it for the audience. Right. So let's see if I can break it down really basically. So um, what we have in the markets are individuals like hedge funds, firms, um, kind of betting that uh, shares will go down, that the market price will go down. And so what they do is they go and they borrow shares um, from brokers and they sell those shares and they're hoping that the shares price will will go down. Um, And then they're going and uh, they're going to repurchase at the lower price, um, make that difference up. So they purchased high and and they're going to, or they purchased, sorry, they borrowed um, the shares and then sold high and then they are are selling, hopefully, well, they're selling them in the in the, share, in the stock, stock market, and then they're going to repurchase, hopefully lower, um, and then they're going to make up that difference. And that's what they're hoping. What was happening though um, is that as retail investors were um, piling into GameStop, um, they're pushing the stock price up. So um, when the short sellers were hoping that the price was going to go down, um, the price was actually going up. And at some point, they have to return their borrowed shares and or pay more money to kind of keep them out on loan. And so they were going to have to go out into the market and buy those shares. And what essentially happened with investors who were going out um, and forcing the price up or forcing uh, the short sellers to go and purchase the shares. Um, at a higher price. And so uh, what we saw were hedge funds losing kind of millions of dollars um, in January of, of, of late January of 2021. Hopefully that isn't too confusing. No, no, uh, but- I think, I know that really helps because I think, you know, it speaks to the motivation and the distrust of Wall Street that this, this Gen Z and, and kind of, I guess we should call them young millennials, the young millennial Gen Z and maybe all millennials have. And it speaks to their investment strategy and it speaks to some of the governance moves that they're pushing. Um, You know, they have a distrust of wall street. So they want to force these companies that are, or these hedge funds and others who are betting against companies, you know, they wanted them to feel some of the pressure. Right. They also were able to make some money on their own by investing in GameStop. Absolutely. I don't know if you, if you had a chance to see this morning in the deal book email, um, I read, and I'm going to read, I'm going to quote a sentence from it. Ackman has permanently retired from Acti's short selling, which he described it as the nauseous form of activism. So mm-hmm. I think something is changing in the, in the short selling scenario as well, which I don't know whether it's possibly a, 
consequence of, of you know the GameStop saga, or you know like uh, raising awareness of both uh, um, other values that are now informing corporate governance, uh, and as well as um, trends on financial markets. But I found that particularly interesting to read this morning. I was um, I found I found their book today very very interesting to read. You know, what I, what I find interesting when I teach BA and I talk about the concept of short selling, it's something that students who don't have business backgrounds find to be inherently unfair. Right. Um, you know, and, and they're like, I don't have the capital and the ability to do that. Like, is that what's, is that what's going to happen with my 401k when I graduate? Like, you know, the idea that, that people are allowed to use the market and kind of literally gamble is how the students feel about it. Um, and I think the fact that that was a strategy that the younger people used in their retail investing was to, to kind of stick it to these people who are short selling just shows how people think it's inherently unfair. And I wonder if it's going to not be able to be a strategy anymore. Yeah, I think that and there's obviously a huge pushback um, among retail investors, at least online um, about that. And there's a concern that the shares that they've purchased and that they you know, are holding on to the long term are being lent out by their brokers. And in order for those brokers to you know, make money off of that, um, and in order for short sellers to then you know, sell these shares, uh, sell the shares and then purchase them uh, and also make money. You know, the other thing that frustrates my students in business associations classes is when they learn about how little power shareholders have. Um, a particularly like a little individual shareholder, you know, and I'm teaching them about, um, you know, hedge funds and their retirement funds and, and like, you know, those accounts and kind of explain to them when you get on E-Trade or you get on Robinhood, you know, you might be buying a fraction of a share or a little share and that share doesn't come with many votes and all those things. They find that to be inherently unfair. But with GameStop and AMC last year, it seemed that shareholders could actually do more and could collectively do more by speaking on Reddit with each other, speaking on Twitter, and coming up with strategies. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit more about corporate governance and go back to the basics a little bit. Um, Sergio, can you explain to us why is it that shareholders in the normal scenario don't have much power? Well, thank you, Carlos. I think that's a very important point. And as you just said a second ago, it depends on what shareholders we are looking at, right? Or as I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, if we if we look at you know the power that Bill Hackman has on the market, that is a shareholder who definitely has power, who can you know make the real difference. But when we look at retail investors, um, there are some let's say good reasons why they have not engaged with corporate governance so far, and perhaps there are some good reasons why they, they can engage with corporate governance now. But let me sort of like make a step back. So first of all, we, ne we need to keep in mind that the ownership structure of the market, like we have institutional investors that hold about 70% of the shares in American public corporations um, and vote most of the shares. So statistics, I read statistics, statistics about 80% of shares held by um, uh, institutional investors are voters. Some statistics are more about like 90% of the shares, but let's say, you know, the vast majority of shares held by institutional investors are voted. And there are some specific reasons, we don't get into that now, but there are some specific, specific reasons why these shares are voted. 
when we look at retail investors, retail investors have about 30% of the shares, you know, collectively speaking, of course, uh, of the shares in U.S. public corporations, and they actually don't even vote shares. So this is like a circular issue, right? Why don't they vote their shares? So they don't have, like, one of the reasons why they don't have parties is because they, they actually don't even vote their shares. But there is a reason why they don't vote their shares, right? First of all, because they know that most of the shares are held by institutional investors. And because, as we say in, in the lingo, uh, they, are, they, they, they experience what is called rational apathy. In other words, they are better off, um, like, uh, let's say, the, the costs... Uh, cons- the, the cost associated with keeping informed, getting informed, and voting shares exceed the benefits that, re- that investors who own small amount of shares in a corporation can can obtain. Right? There is also another phenomenon which is very much related to that, which is you know typically referred to as uh, free ride, which is basically saying, why should I bother voting? And get, being informed and, and, you know, bear this cause when somebody else is going to do that and is going to do that on an informed basis. And so I can just take a free ride on the activity and the cause uh, that another, another entity or another uh, person is, is bearing, right? It's a free ride, right? So there are, there are reasons why retail investors are basically disempowered. Some of these reasons. Uh, very much depend on collective action problems. In other words, if retail investors realize that collectively they can pack an enormous amount of power, as I said before, then their um, approach to corporate governance, their approach to voting might change because they actually see the difference they can make. So again, for this is not related to corporate governance, but again, a few, a few minutes ago, I mentioned um, Bill Ackman, who is a very famous, very strong um, uh, hedge fund person, saying, uh, I want to abandon short selling. Again, I don't know whether there is any causation between the GameStop phenomenon, the power that retail investor um, showcased, and this decision. Perhaps not. But what I can see is that the voice of retail investors now arrives to way more people. It, has, it is very impactful. It can be ins- inspiring for other people to decide to follow, to, to follow suit, take part in corporate governance, put in some time in being informed, put in some time in voting their shares, especially now that technology support much easier access to direct holding of uh, corporate shares and uh, hopefully much easier access to voting through uh, virtual shareholder meetings and and easier access to to information uh, about corporations. So there there is a lot to be said there, uh, but I guess in, in, in in short, it's rational that they have not engaged with corporate governance so far, that retail investors have not engaged in corporate governance so far. It's probably rational that they start engaging 
from now on because now they really there are they really are the right tools to to engage with the with the corporate sector now you know how have retail investors so far helped to change this landscape and i'll i'll, I'll kick it to christina on that one you know i we, you mentioned some of the policies that amc has taken on some of the acquisitions and how the new shareholders trust them how much of amc is owned by retail investors now how much of gamestop is owned and so what have they been able to do by focusing on these two companies so far? Um, well, I think here we have to make a distinction um, between just your traditional retail investor and wireless investors. Um, I really think that the, the bulk of the investors that we see in GameStop and in AMC are of those you know, wireless generations of the millennial and Gen Z generations, most likely. Um, they come together online, as we've mentioned. They're very comfortable communicating online, um, and they're using online communications and, and social media to collectively act. Um, and so, what they've been doing, as we already talked about a bit, uh, was they they were investing as groups and um, collectively investing in GameStop and, and AMC, and really kind of coordinating their moves in that. Now, with respect to um, corporate governance and, and changes that they are beginning to be able to implement. Um, we are also seeing them come together online and discuss voting um, and discuss how they're going to be voting at shareholder meetings. We saw Reddit uh, forums being opened. Um, talking about how they're going to vote, um, about voting, about encouraging um, others to vote in the meetings last year. Uh, and we also see them talk about governance issues. So, uh, for example, what we saw uh, was that AMC took a, a share authorization vote um, off the shareholder meeting agenda last year after really significant pushback online from shareholders. Um, it hadn't even gotten to the shareholder meeting yet. And there was just an uproar on, on Twitter and, and on Reddit and on other, different social media venues um, about the share authorization vote. And so a couple of weeks before the shareholder meeting last July, AMC just took it off the agenda and said, we're not even going to, we're not even going to have you all vote on this. Like, forget it. Um, as a result, now AMC really has hardly any shares left authorized that are unissued. So it has very, very little room to kind of maneuver there. Um, and so for, for your listeners, and typically what happens um, is that in the, in a company's author, Certificate of, of, of Incorporation or Articles of Incorporation, which is like their kind of constitution, um, they will have a, a significant number of shares that are authorized, um, but not yet issued. And it's within the board's discretion to um, go ahead and, and issue those shares um, as long as they're authorized within the uh, Certificate or Articles of Incorporation. Um, and it, and it gives them some um, room to maneuver, it gives the board of directors some room to maneuver. If they don't have enough shares um, authorized but unissued, then the board of directors doesn't have a lot of um, shares with which to work, um, can't raise as much money uh, and things along those lines. So, so that's just some, some things that we've 
are beginning to see going on uh, with respect to AMC. Um, and then and with respect to, to GameStop, they also uh, are giving a lot of feedback about what they want to see the companies do. Um, so the kind of products that they want to see um, the companies in, engage in and sell. And um, there's a lot of push for AMC and, and GameStop to actually kind of team up and, and work together. And, uh, and so we're seeing that, I think, also unfold as well. Now, this is totally a little off script, but I did skim y'all's article this week about uh, stakeholders. Um, and so I want to just, and, you know, Anat has been a guest on the show as well. Um, and so, you know, I'd love to hear what y'all think about whether this rise in retail investors and wireless investors can help bring about stakeholder theory. Like, is it going to force corporations to care about more stakeholders simply because these wireless investors are doing so? Absolutely. Sergio. <laughs> yeah, it definitely raises a lot of awareness, right? Uh, it's, uh, it's a way to really <clears throat> make it to, to, you know, the rooms that really count uh, in a way. So um, we think that a lot can be done by shareholders. Uh, shareholders can be great advocates of uh, stakeholders' um, necessities, goals, and need for protection. Uh, we also think that uh, uh, there are different layers, different levels. So uh, what shareholders can do should not prevent policymakers from actually intervening and providing, uh, you know, new forms of legislation that actually um, protects protects. Uh, stakeholders better, protects the environment better, protects, you know, society better. Uh, so uh, we don't, we think that what um, shareholders do supplement what policymakers can do, right? So it's like, a, we see that as a form of synergetic um, endeavor. And, you know, we, we've talked about how the younger kids, um, I, I have to tell my students, I think y'all are better people than we are, <laughs> you know, the, the Gen Z's and the millennials. Cause I feel like when I was in law school, my concern was just making money um, mm -hmm. and being able to buy nice things. Um, yeah. And I, you know, and we talked about this last week, we talked about human rights, right? Like they care about where their products are made. They care, you know, they care about more. Um, and, and so, you know, has the fact that they are more diverse and that they care about more than just the bottom line and the, and the final product. Um, has that made an impact on the, on the companies that they've invested in? I, I mean, I think absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's making, they're making an impact, not just in the companies that they're investing in, um, but also the companies whose products they're using and, and also where they're working. Um, so what we've seen in, in the research, and, and I'm deep in, in the weeds on millennial and Gen Z research, let me tell you, uh, that they these generations are the most um, likely to call it racism and sexism, um, probably as a result of the fact that they are very diverse themselves. Um, they're not afraid to engage in, in you know, cancel culture, right? They're not afraid to, to cancel companies or cancel leaders. Um, when their actions aren't lining up with, with stated values. And so that will go along with investing, of course. Um, they have an expectation that companies are, are going to take action and, and they're going to step in and, 
and fill gaps um, where where the government hasn't hasn't taken action. And there's an expectation also. The research says that uh, millennials and and Gen Z um, are expecting companies to take action before the government tells them to do so. Um, and so they really want, I think, companies to be first movers. And so there's a pressure um, on, on companies from millennial and Gen Z generations um, regarding that. Um, you kind of alluded to this, that Gen Z considers themselves citizens of the world, not just citizens of, of, of their specific country, but citizens of the world. Um, they're also what we call clicktivists. Um, so they believe that they can be part of a social movement, even if they're only participating online. Um, and then also along those lines, and this is, I always kind of find this statistic shocking um, as part of a, the generation X, um, but Gen Z doesn't differentiate between the, the friends that they're making um, online and the friends that they're making in um in person, in, in, in real life. Um, and so that I think is also impacting how they interact with companies and, and the pressure that they can put on, on, put on companies. Um, and it's also impacting how they gather online. They're very comfortable speaking about their investing online and it's about speaking about their, their finances online. So it's no longer taboo for these generations to talk about finances online, whereas with you know, older generations, um, we kind of really shied away from that and, and thought it was a, a taboo thing to talk about as well. Um, I alluded to them being negatively impacted by the financial crisis, by the Great Recession, um, by the by the pandemic, um, and they're very concerned. Uh, in addition to that, they're concerned um, with society as a whole. Um, they're concerned with with climate change. Um, all of this is going to really playing out in in how they invest. And statistics show that more than any other previous generations, millennials and Gen Z are taking ESG uh, factors and, and stakeholder considerations um, into consideration when they're investing. Um, and so they're way more concerned about ESG than Gen Gen X than baby boomers. Um, and they're considering what these companies are doing with respect to um, environmental, social, and, and governance issues uh, before even investing in them. You know, now we've kind of been positive the whole show so far. Um, and, you know, and Sergio alluded to y'all's work on um, getting, making sure good information is out there. Um, you know, could y'all talk about what the risks are in of investing in trendy meme stocks, of just going on Twitter, going on Reddit and opening your Robinhood account and just buying whatever someone on Reddit or Twitter told you to buy today. Right. Well, I mean, there's obviously several risks. Uh, I, I think one is, is a risk of a lack of diversification, right? That's an, always an issue if you're um, putting all of your eggs or most of your eggs in one basket. Um, so if you're putting all of your, your money in AMC or GameStop or whatever the, the trendy stock is of, of that particular day, um, there's a risk with that. Uh, and these meme stocks are highly aggressive. If you're, if you're looking at your, your kind of pie chart on, on whatever your, your app is, it, it's gonna, if you're just investing in, in AMC and GameStop and um, these you know, so-called meme stocks, you're going to have a very aggressive uh, portfolio. Um, another issue is, of course, kind of 
following others um, into these stocks and and really hurting into the stocks, as opposed to looking at the the companies yourself and you know making your own financial decisions and and what works for your particular in a portfolio of investments. So what works for for me may not work for you, and um, I think that people need different you know, diversification um, within their their portfolios for different reasons. Um, and I think relatedly, there's an, an issue of, of emotional investing. Uh, I think that this is always really present present with um, with retail investors, but it really seems to be more of an issue with wireless investors um, because of their values, um, because of the things that they feel so strong. I think that there's a lot of about a lot of kind of sentimental investing. Um, which isn't really based off of financials and you know, the traditional things you think about when you're investing. So there's there are definitely a number of risks involved. Now, let's say you're just, you know, a, a teenager with your allowance money or a college student with like the leftover student loan payments. And you want to, like you're looking on Reddit, you're looking on Twitter and you're looking to invest. Where can you go to verify the information that you see on social media? Um, you know, I like to throw out details for folks about, you know, we tell them don't use Reddit, don't use Twitter, like, you know, please just don't rely on what you see on the internet. So just kind of throw out some resources of real concrete information about companies. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, fact check, fact checking is, is the big deal here. Um, but the problem with fact checking is that, of course, there are, you know, like resources. So, you know, SEC filings, uh, you know, disclosure, all the information that the corporation is required to provide to the market. That is information that everybody should read. Is that ac- accessible information? Is that easy information to read and understand? That is a different problem, right? So this is exactly where we believe an intervention both based on private ordering and perhaps, you know, legislative intervention. Uh, make a... Oh, we lost Sergio. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Christina, you can finish up. You know, Christina and Sergio do have this proposal um, that they are working on in an upcoming paper about having kind of a public square on company websites where mm-hmm. they can, can fill in the gap. Mm-hmm. Um, cause, cause what I was mainly concerned about and, and Sergio did allude to this, um, you know, there is the sec website where you can go look at the 10 K's and the 10 Q's and the eight K's and all this mandatory information, but that information is hard to understand. Um, right. I only look at it because I'm a law professor. Yes. Um, right. And so right. often what people are relying on is just what they hear by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact checking is a real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I really want to, what I try to encourage people to do is every company has an investor relations website, even before Christina and Sergio's forum takes place. <laughs> and they are required to put true and accurate information on that forum by mm-hmm. law. Um, and so before you pull the trigger on your E-Trade account or your Robinhood account or whatever, just Google the company website and go look at investor relations. Um, there is, they have to put all their financials and all their data there. Um, that's the easiest way to fact check, even though the information may be hard, harder to understand. Sorry, sorry, Kelly. All good. 
I'm good. I think I filled in what you were going to say. All right. <laughs> All right. So for our last few for our last few minutes, what I'd like to do is speculate on what the future could hold. Um, Christina, I will start to you. Start with you. Do you think wireless and retail investors are here to stay? Uh, I mean, ab- absolutely. Um, I, I, they're not going anywhere. Um, and you know, as we've already talked about, and wireless investors have at their very core um, the desire to invest directly. Um, they're gathering online. It's very natural for them to do it. They are uh, digital pioneers. Um, they are. Uh, they're. They just. It's second nature for them to be gathering online. Um, and they also, as we talked about, care very, very deeply about the issues affecting society and the planet. Um, and they expect, again, corporations to set values and to live up to them. Um, and um, they aren't afraid, again, to call out corporations and their leaders for if they're falling short. So I think absolutely wireless investors are here to stay. And I think they're only going to become more, more active. Sergio, what do you think? Oh, I think it's. I think that's perfectly right. I think that you know they're going to become more and more powerful. I just you know spoke before about like how much fiscal power they're going to have. Um, so we'll see that as an increasing phenomenon. Again, probably these would be much better if uh, corporations uh, decide to harness this power and you know they provide tools. Uh, and again, this idea of the forum, or like or you know venue where. Um, um, retail investor can engage with the corporation and you know check some f- check facts and you know ask questions. That would make uh, the phenomenon probably bigger, and also better. Mm-hmm. Better because it would be better for corporations. It would be better for retail investors. It would be better for society uh, ultimately because it would be easier to invest. In the in the stock market, um, it would be easier to uh, to know what corporations really do because, because corporations sometimes do some bad, but very often do a lot of good, and uh, a lot of people probably don't realize that. So, being part of the corporate sector, being part of of the system, um, is I believe important, even when you want to criticize the system or you want to provide. Um, your contribution to the system. So uh, wireless investing has the potential to become more and more relevant and possibly, uh, we believe, uh, um, cause uh, lasting paradigm shifts, both in investing and in corporate governance. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about the paradigm shift. Um, And this one's kind of an audible, did not put this on the forum, but I've just been thinking about it as we've been discussing. You know, if retail and wireless investing is here to stay, For the folks who are running corporations and managing corporations, does monitoring Twitter and Reddit and other platforms now become a part of your fiduciary duties? Are are we now required? Um, I find myself doing it more just as someone who teaches it because I don't think I'm informed about corporations anymore unless I get on social media and research them. Um, Do you think that has now extended to what corporations have to do? I, I'm I'm shaking my head vigorously. Yes, I I think that is definitely what corporations need to do. Um, I also I think that corporations that are offering products and, and services to to people um, in particular have a lot to gain from kind of building this 
really constant dialogue um, with the with consumers and with investors. Um, what we see, of course, also are that consumers become investors, and, and then investors also are more likely to in to buy the products and the services um, of these companies. And so I think that there is a real need for investor relations um, to expand and to really focus on you know, what's happening on social media um, and what the, the sentiment is uh, among individuals on social media. Also, um, to identify information that is possibly inaccurate and that is getting kind of perpetuated, they need to be able to come out and, and correct that information. Um, we had talked a little bit just a, a bit ago about kind of where you get information. I think in addition, of course, to the investor relations um, websites for, for the companies that have leaders um, that are on social media, uh, on Twitter, I think it's also important to to look at those those Twitter sites as well. And I know that you had on previously. You're talking about Elon Musk and and his tweets. Um, and that's a whole other <laughs> that's your whole other radio show. But I think it's really important. Um, I think it's really really important. What do you well, think, Sergio? Go ahead. Well, it's terrible to talk to talk with you know to you, Carlos, because you brought it on new on a new level. Um, and- Terrible meaning, meaning great. Uh, I, I, I love that you, you threw out there the fiduciary duty, um, sort of like um, hook. I have to think about that to give you a precise answer. Um, I'm not ready, uh, but I think it's very important that we start consider that possibility. And again, for us, and you know, it's just a plug, but for us, that can be an important way to sort of like angle our, our you know, uh, proposal of having this forum on the, on the, you know, corporate website, the corporation website, because in a way that's like a form of mediation of what is happening, you know, out there. Uh, so if there is a fiduciary duty or if there will be actually a fiduciary duty, um, I don't know exactly, but... Uh, uh, perhaps there is, perhaps there will be, and uh, one way probably to, uh, uh, let's say, comply with that duty is to really engage with investors in a forthcoming way and provide information, uh, address inaccurate information that are out there. Uh, and so, for example, this the forum we, we you know we propose or, or, or similar. Um, initiatives can help with, uh, you know, to, to satisfy that, uh, that requirement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you know, in asking the question, what I was thinking is, you know, I'm an ex so I'm like on the cusp of ex and millennial. And I find I'm often like bridging the gap between the generations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I hear from people who are Gen X and older, um, and not all Gen X, but, you know, I would say old Gen X and then older than that is I'm not getting on social media. I'm not paying attention to that. That's not real. That's just the young people. Um, And I can see the day when, you know, there is information out on TikTok that is completely inaccurate and a corporation is taking the old Gen X slash baby boomer approach of ignoring all social media and the stock price tanks. Mm -hmm. And then shareholders are filing a fiduciary duty lawsuit because it's like, why didn't you go out and correct the TikTok? 
Or why didn't you go out and correct the Reddit? Why did you let that false information sit out there and like waste my value, right? And and lose my my wealth. And that's, you know, that's kind of where I'm thinking. And I and I know that, you know, I have friends who are running these companies who are like, I'm a serious company, I'm not on social media, right? Or I'm a serious, you know, I'm a serious person and I'm in my 50s. I'm not gonna get on social media. Um, and I question whether we can have that attitude. I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think what what we're seeing um, uh, is millennials and Gen Z, they value transparency um, and they want companies, they want individuals to be transparent with them and to be honest with them about what is happening. Um, And they also want a more personalized user experience. And so what is being recommended um, by marketing companies, by, by PR companies, by investor relations is to engage with millennials and Gen Z by using influencers, um, which you also have to be very careful about because these influencers, um, they have very significant um, you know, a number of, of, of followers, many of them, um, but you also have to be careful about you know, the quality of what they're saying as well. Um, but I think that we're seeing a, a shift in, in at least some companies beginning to use influencers and even these influencers being appointed, at least in one case I saw, um, to the board of directors um, of a company. So um, I think that we're going to see a, a significant shift. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if this is being taken into consideration of fiduciary duties in the future. I'd never heard of a finfluencer. <laughs> a financial influencer, a finfluencer. That's, that's, yeah, that's wow. Um, I feel like, you know, I we missed the window. Like we could just be famous on social media and like making tons of money. And instead, you know, we write papers and books all day. Like what were we thinking? <laughs> we needed to be born like 10 years later so that we could, I could be a finfluencer. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I would love to be a finfluencer. All right. All right, Sergio, I'll give you the last comment because we've only got a few minutes left. Do you think all these changes are good? Do you think this is a positive? Oh, well, I think it's a positive, but it is like we have, you know, we also have to keep in mind a number of considerations when, you know, when we discuss this, like there are problems related to, um, you know, competence when, when we talk about investing, there are problems about related to like, you know, gathering good information as, as you stressed before, um, there are problems related to, uh, you know, reckless investing and so on. So we do, uh, we, we have to be careful when, when we discuss like a phenomenon like this, because, um, we also don't want an over politicized, uh, form of, of investing probably. Um, so I think it's a positive. I think it can bring a lot of good, both to financial markets and to, and especially I believe to corporate governance. Um, and what I really love about this is how inclusive this could be. Mm-hmm. Um, small interests allow people to participate in the system. So I think, what is really positive of this phenomenon is that it makes the corporate sector and uh, the system we live in uh, more inclusive. Awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you, Christina, for joining me today on Getting Common. Um, you know, we actually have these conversations all the time. In addition to talking about bars 
and cocktails, um, which is our favorite conversation. But when we aren't talking about bars and cocktails, we are talking about corporate governance. If you ever miss an episode of Getting Common, you can catch the rebroadcasts anywhere podcasts are played, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere else. You can also hear the episodes on the Voice America Network, and you can watch on our YouTube channel. Feel free to send me emails through the show page or reach out on social media. I'm at Carla C on all platforms. And next week, we will continue our conversations about tech, and we'll be talking about NFTs and cryptocurrency investing. Um, So I'm really looking forward to that episode, too. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you all next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion. 